good morning, gentlemen. Ah, good. The amplification is working. Our, our sound, our sound engineer is unfortunately not well, so I'm making do. If you guys see Doug, say, Doug, we missed you, but we, we managed to get the microphone hooked into the wall and the wall hooked into the amplification system this morning. Well, I, I'm Eric Stevens, by the way. I know we have some first time visitors here. If, if you don't mind identifying yourself, I promise there will not be any form of hazing. If this is your first time here uh, at the men's breakfast, raise your hand. One, two, three. So, Jay, these are the hands. Raise your hands just one more second. These are the first-timers. Jay's here this morning making certain that we get our, our database, both for existing people and new people, up to date. And don't worry, we're not going to be spamming you with all forms of paraphernalia about the United Methodist men's activities. There are a lot of them, I have found out. Um, this morning, we're just going to focus on on two, we've got a speaker, and I will be introducing him in just a second. But right after this breakfast, we have an opportunity to help out with the great, uh, the National Day of Prayer. Uh, if you didn't know, today is the National Day of Prayer. I don't think they arranged it around our breakfast, but it just worked out just perfectly. And uh, our church has traditionally helped City Hall with getting chairs together. And so if we could get a crew of about five to ten men who would help uh, Steve Block, raise your hand. Steve is in charge, just so that you know. Um, he's going to have his trailer up in the corner of the parking lot, and we're going to get about a hundred chairs into that trailer. The chairs are light. This is, you know, not a big deal. Um, Tom, I uh, just want to let you know we're going to get those chairs back here before the barbecue on Sunday, so that we will. Okay, sure, sure. I'm, they'll come back today. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to scare anybody. Um, so we've got a real quick volunteer activity right after breakfast. We'll get those loaded up. So uh, thank you, Steve, for uh, taking charge of that. Um, other quick announcements. If you did not get both a text message on Monday evening and an email on Monday evening, please make triply sure that your information is circled on the sign-in sheets. Sign in, that's a hint. And if you'd like, you can check with, with Jay. Jay, raise your hand one more time. And he's got his iPad, and he can put the data straight into a ministry platform, and then we will be able to coordinate uh, with everybody electronically. So let me thank you for being here. Um, I'm Eric Stevens, if I forgot to say that at the top of the hour. And um, I've been a member of RUMC. I, the way I remember it is I showed up for the very first rehearsal the week of patriotic concert, the summer of the uh, of the Olympics in Atlanta. So they thought we were with the Olympics. Yeah, I mean maybe because we were strange people from inside the perimeter. And um, I remember the guy who gave the devotional, Jeff Diamond, was on the Olympic committee, kind of connected to the Olympics. And I said, "Wow, this church is into everything. They got the Olympics here and everything." But when I knew I had found my home, was during that rehearsal. When Tom Alderman was practicing one of the pieces, we got to hear um, um, a little snippet of what we were going to have in the patriotic concert. Well, I'd never been to a patriotic concert here before, so I had no idea what caliber of, uh, of musician Tom Alderman was. Well, my wife and I have found ourselves entrenched in this church in the music department ever since. And so I, I, I blame sometimes, but I certainly give credit to the the... The most senior person on the staff, that doesn't mean he's the oldest person on the staff. 
Tom has now been at RUMC longer than anybody else on the staff. That's some sort of survival record, if you ask me. <laughs> but um, yeah. So w with that introduction, Tom, please come uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you, Eric. Uh, really don't know why I was invited to speak this morning. My talents are elsewhere, but uh, I'll be glad to share uh, a little bit about myself and and about some uh, um, aspects of faith that have uh, come my way through the years. Uh, grew up in Savannah, Georgia, on the coast. Uh, love it and still like going back there. I think I, I, I dream of retiring there someday, but no time soon. Um, I went to uh, college at Shorter, uh, college now Shorter University in Rome, which at the time was the best music school in the state. And um, I had a, had a great time there. Uh, upon leaving Shorter, I ended up with several good church jobs in a row. I was at Calhoun First Baptist, Roswell Street Baptist in Marietta, then Second Potsdam Baptist on Peachtree Street in Atlanta. Great church. I was raised Baptist, so all of these Baptist churches felt good at the time. Then um, uh, during a music program one night down at Second Potts, we had hired Cheryl Rogers to play piano. Um, I was at the organ, and we had several other instruments and a huge choir going, and she snuck over to the organ afterwards, and she said, we need an organist at Roswell Methodist. Are you interested? I said, well, talk to me. She said, well, we are about to break ground on a new sanctuary and new organ, and we're going to grow the choir. It's going to be a great place to be. And uh, I was up here within a few months. So uh, a great seed planted by Cheryl Rogers, and we, we, we joke about it to this day. Her older sister, Eileen, was the children's uh, coordinator at Second Ponsalian Baptist, and within a year we had her hired up here as well. So, uh, so we're probably a dirty name to Second Postillion Baptist, but, uh, but, but it's been a great journey. What I want to talk about today is, um, God's timing. Uh, I've had some incidents happen during my life that, uh, didn't think much of it at the time, but uh, in retrospect, when I think of the big picture of how God times things, it's just wonderful how He really is in control. But we have to let go. We want, you've heard the joke, God, I need patience and I want it now. You know, that doesn't flow, you know. And this all started about five years ago. I was in Savannah during the summer. I'd taken my son, Patrick, and we were visiting my mother. And we always take one morning and go to Tybee, Savannah Beach. Uh, my kids love the beach. So, and we don't get much time there. So we get up early in the morning, get our McDonald's biscuit and beat the crowd to Tybee, walk from one end of the beach to the other and, and enjoy our time. And Patrick especially likes the pier. We walk way out on the pier and watch the fishermen work the deep water, you know, at the end. And then there's this cheap little souvenir store called Chews that's been there for 80 years. And we like to go there and buy cheap stuff and souvenirs and always buy a pint of boiled peanuts. And eat them in the car on the way home, you know. So that's our that's our typical Tybee trip. And this particular day, we had finished doing what we were doing, and I said, Patrick, there's still 45 minutes on the meter. I paid, you know, these. You, know, you put your card in the meter and choose your time. I said, we've got 45 more minutes on the meter. He said, you know, we've done everything we want to do. It's hot. Let's go home and have lunch with with Grandma. I said, that's a good idea. Let's do that. So we jumped in the car and took off and. Um, 
got back home, flipped the computer on, and headlines on the news page, Tobby Road closed for five more hours. And I thought, closed? We just came. There had been a horrible three-car accident on top of the Lazaretta Creek Bridge. And when I read the description of the cars and the vehicles, I realized I had passed those cars about a mile before the bridge. Because I knew that the four lanes go to two lanes, and if you're behind any you know, slow cars, you never get home. So I had passed all these cars, and there were the same cars that were described in the accident. So it happened in my rearview mirror. Uh, one car with a young couple and their baby rolled three times and almost went off the top of the bridge. Uh, so it was it was a cataclysmic accident. Nobody was killed, but it was a scary thing, and the road was closed till 5 that afternoon. So I can imagine, number one, I'm thankful to God that we were not involved in the accident, doubly thankful that I wasn't sitting on the approach to that bridge for five hours in the hot sun with an autistic child in the car. That would not have been a pretty sight. No, we just cruised on back to Savannah like like nobody's business. So it was, it was kind of an amazing story to tell. A month later, I went back to Tybee with my daughter this time, both son and daughter. They were both with me. And, of course, we... Uh, we did our Tybee thing, and uh, we were showing Emily, you know, when we crossed the bridge, this is where that horrible wreck happened. She said, yeah, you can see the concrete railings have been replaced on one side. I said, yeah, one of the cars rolled against it. So she said, that's just freaky. That's freaky that y'all missed that. So we did the whole routine, you know, walked the beach, walked the pier, went to choose, got our boiled peanuts. I said, well, we've got 35 minutes left on the meter. Y'all want to do something else? And Patrick said, Dad, don't you remember? Let's get home. <laughs> I said, well, you're right. So we got in the car at 1230. Easy trip back to Savannah. Flipped on the computer, and the Tybee Roads closed again. I said, what in the world happened? Three minutes after we passed Fort Pulaski, somebody ran a stop sign and was T-boned on both sides. And the road was closed till the end of the day. Nobody could go or come from the island. And as a matter of fact, in that mess, there was somebody in the backup that got impatient and tried to turn around, and they backed into a tidal creek and had to be rescued out of their car that was going down in the water. All this was happening. It happened like five minutes after we had passed Fort Pulaski. So my daughter and I especially got into a discussion about how do we stay in God's good graces so that we're not caught in either the wreck or the backup behind it. It's horrible. I said, I really don't know because I'm sure there are some very righteous people sitting for five hours and can't get, you know, it's, it's nothing we have done. It's just God has his way of timing things. Uh, I heard someone do a commentary on the radio. This particular common, uh, commentator usually did political stuff, and I, I was very quick to usually turn it off because I don't want to hear it. But this particular day, I was listening, and he was going on. He said, I'm not talking about politics today. I'm going to share something with you that... That, uh, um, that I really want to share. You sit in traffic a lot. He said, I was with a friend of mine yesterday, and we got caught by a funeral procession. And he was railing on about, ah, oh, this has killed five minutes. We could already be there if we hadn't gotten caught by this funeral procession. What's going on? And this commentator said, but wait a minute. We're here. This is where we're supposed to be. When you get caught by a yellow light or a red light, don't get frustrated. It is putting you where you're supposed to be right now not where you might think you should be down the road where something not so pleasant might could happen. So you just have to relax and say, I caught the red light, I'm where I'm supposed to be, I'll get there when I get there. And I thought it was a great commentary. And that happened 
like just a day or two after this mess at Tidy happened. And I thought, well, that's right. You've got to trust God and just know you're aware he wants you at that time and not fret about where you think you want to be. Um, so, so that sort of was the only perspective I could put on the whole thing for my daughter. And it sort of worked. And I said, there is scripture about timing things. And of course, uh, uh, the, the one that we all know is there is a time and there is a season for every purpose under heaven. Time to be born, a time to die, time to plant, a time to reap, time to kill, time to heal, a time to mourn, and there's a time to dance, and there's a time to scatter stones, and there's a time to gather stones together. So we have to understand that there's a specific time for everything, and we're not in charge of that. Um, and, and as I think through life, there have been things that have happened over the long haul that have sort of amazed me in retrospect, and I'm going to share some of those with you. Um, when I was 10 years old, my grandmother uh, wanted to go visit a first cousin of hers that lived in Jacksonville, Florida, and she was going to ride the train. My grandmother's brother was an engineer for Atlantic Coastline Railroad, and she said, I'm going to take you, Tommy. I'm going to take you. With, will you behave for a few days if I take you to stay with my aunt in Jacksonville? She lived the 12th floor of a big apartment, St. John's Apartments in downtown Jacksonville, with a huge picture window overlooking the Trout River. So it was a great place, And uh, but the train ride was even better. My uncle was the engineer, and this was back in the days when they were allowed running 100 miles an hour. So uh, I had a blast. Matter of fact, he took me up in the engine before we left Savannah, and I got to uh, see all the gadgets and figure out where the throttle and the brakes and the, you know, the air horn and all that was on the engine. I said, how much would it cost if I ride up here in the engine? And my uncle said, it cost me my job. Go go find your grandmother. <laughs> so, so we had a good ride on the train. That was probably the best part of the week for me. But uh, I enjoyed staying with my Aunt Lucille in Jacksonville. And she right away tuned in and she said, well, um, how are you? How's school going? I said, well, it's great. You know, I'm doing good in school. She said, but you play the piano, don't you? I said, I do. She said, that's great. I hear you're pretty good. I said, well, I, I do what I can do. She said, do you want to be a concert pianist when you grow up? And I said, no, I want to be an organist. I really do. That's where my passion is uh, uh, in church, you know, playing the, playing the organ. And uh, she said, well, that's fantastic. Every, or every church needs a good organist. And uh, she said, well, that's wonderful. She said, as a matter of fact, I have a neighbor upstairs who just put a brand new organ in his apartment. And once a month, he invites us all up for, uh, you know, party food and hors d'oeuvres. And he plays and plays and plays into the wee hours of the morning. We just love hearing. You ought to go see that thing. She said, let me call him. So she called Mr. Bill upstairs and said, I've got a nephew, 10-year-old nephew, very interested in music. Will you play the organ and let him see and hear it? Oh, that would be great. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm kind of busy right now, but give me a call back. Um, cats in the cradle, silver spoon, little boy blue, the man of the moon. We'll have a great time then, you know. And uh, called the next day and called the next day. And he was way too busy to accommodate this 10-year-old kid. And it really put a bummer on my trip. And I remember my Aunt Lucille looked at me when she finally said, he's not going to answer the phone again. And she said, I don't understand why he's being this way, but if we can't do the best thing, we can do the next best thing. And she looked at my grandmother and said, I'm going to get your purse. We're going to have lunch at the Jacksonville Zoo today. So we had a great time at the zoo. It made me forget about Mr. Bill and the organ upstairs that I didn't get to go see or hear. But it was disappointing. 
And I thought, you know, he could take just a minute or two for a kid that's interested. But no, he wasn't. When I got back home to Savannah, I talked to Dad. I said, you know, can can we afford an organ? I would really like one in the house. And uh, he took me about every, for three or four weeks, every Saturday morning we'd go to a different piano showroom and we would look at the instruments and I would collect all the data. I've still got all those brochures in a box in my, in my office from when I was 10 years old. But I realized uh, the organ that I would need to do serious study would cost as much as a car. And we could not afford that. So I never pushed the issue. I knew my parents would buy one if they could and they could not. Within about three years, I had access to the organ at church. I was a teenager by then, and I was beginning to study organ on a limited basis. And uh, the organist was obliging and and let me play a little bit when I needed to there. Uh, And it actually stood her in good stead because she had some health issues, and I bailed her out playing for about two months in church when I was uh, early high school age. And by then, I had several churches in downtown Savannah with big pipe organs that invited me to come anytime I wanted to. So in a way, my prayers to God, I was so anxious as a kid to get an organ, but th- there again, we've got the uh, the scripture, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And I prayed every night for an organ in our house. Didn't get one in the house, but I got access to everyone in the city of Savannah. So God answered that prayer in his way and in his time. Um, fast forward many years, went through college, several church jobs. I was here all about 20 years ago, and uh, the only only disadvantage here, I'm living in Marietta, a good 30, 45 minutes away, and of course the organ's here, so anytime I want to practice, it's got to be when I'm here. If I want to run through stuff on Saturday or or have a practice session at night, forget it. You know, I'll just have to wait till I'm here. Um, we got a call from a family over off Highway 92, a member of the church here, and they had an organ they needed to move out of the house. They had bought it used years ago, and it had been in the family a while, and um, their kids no longer played it because they were busy. They were getting in high school, and they were too busy to sit and play on the organ, but it was still in very good shape, and the family didn't want it just tossed out or, you know, given for scrap. Usually when people call, and they call me probably once a month, I'll get a call for a used organ or piano here at the church that they want to donate. And most of the time, it's nothing we can use. And I have to say, thank you for your offer, but we really can't use it right now. But something triggered in my head, said, check this one out, check this organ out. So I made an appointment, went over, looked at it, and it was magnificent. It was a large instrument, um, a theater organ, actually, uh, with all the trappings for playing silent movies, the sound effects, the car horn, the siren, the train whistle, all this stuff. But it was a real organ buried down inside of it. Uh, Baldwin, uh, the company that built that organ, was very smart. They used the same chassis for their church organs as the theater organs. They just decorated them differently. So this turned out to be a very good instrument, even by my standards. So we, uh, Dick Schwartz, the business administrator, wrote them a nice note of acceptance and something they could use for a tax write-off, and a friend of mine helped get the organ over here, put it in the choir room, and really ran through it, cleaned it out on the inside. It was in perfect condition for something back in the 60s. Problem was, Michael and I both would have liked to have kept it in the choir room uh, to use with the choir when they do big works with organ, but there was no there was no space to do, to put it. Um, we have so many groups at that time using the choir room, the Wind Symphony, 
the Georgia Regional Girls Chorus, the Michael O'Neill Singers, the Sanctuary, every night some big group's in there, and they need all the floor space. So we realized that, that uh, even a big console of this size just would not fit in the choir room with all of the stuff that needed to go on in there. So behind the scenes, unbeknownst to me, he got with Dick Swartz, and they came to me a day or two later and said, we, we know where the organ needs to go. I said, where's that? They said, you're a living room. I said, you're kidding. I said, it was given to the church. They said, you are part of the church. You need it. Who at the church needs it more than you do? I said, well, thank you. So I paid the piano movers to move it to my house. And for the past 20 years, I have thoroughly enjoyed having my own organ to practice on. My son almost took it away from me when he was a little kid. He would listen on CDs to classical music and then run into the living room and learn it by ear playing it on the organ. So it got used a lot more probably than it would have anywhere else. Um, so God provided again, but there's even a sweeter turn to the whole story. Uh, and this is where God works so well, and we just need to sit back and let God work. Um, a lot of places during my life I could have probably acquired an organ at home, but this one came my way when it came my way. About five years ago, it was malfunctioning a little bit. There was a little accessory that wasn't working like it should have and uh in the bench was a huge book of schematics back in the 60s everything was circuit boards so this book contained all the circuit board schematics for the entire organ so i was pouring through all of it trying to find the one that controlled the little gizmo that wasn't working and this manila envelope fell out of the back of the um, schematic book and i it had the baldwin the old baldwin label on it i said oh my gosh it's the dealer the dealer packet that came when the organ was new. Wonder who in Atlanta bought it uh, when it was new. Well, I'll look. I remember the guy said it had been used. Um, the organ was delivered to the Coral Gables Baldwin dealer in Coral Gables, Florida. I thought, my word, it's traveled up the coast over the years. I'm, you know, wonder who all's had it. And I have no idea who's had it in the interim, but the bill of lading was still in the envelope. And it was signed and sealed for that organ, brand new, to be delivered to Mr. William um, Barron, 1402 St. John's Apartment, Jacksonville, Florida. Oh. <laughs> that was the organ that I was deprived hearing and seeing when I was 10 years old. And it's been in my living room for the past 20 years. That's how God works if you'll just stand back and let it happen. Another interesting little story. Uh, um, a friend of mine, Jim, uh, was minister of music at a large Baptist church in Houston, Texas, South Main Baptist. Beautiful um, Gothic Byzantine church. Uh, very untypical for Baptists. And they had a very untypical music program. Wonderful choir, handbell program, a big pipe organ. Their youth had a band that played every Wednesday night for the family night supper. Um, five or six piece youth band that, that played their music and the people enjoyed it. It was great. They had a couple of players that were not church members. They had invited from school and it was sort of their mission way. You know, the kids don't know they're being invited to fellowship at the church. They're just being invited to, you know, to jam on the, on the instruments. And one of those guys was a guy named Daryl who was a very good bass guitar player. And he was jamming for a few weeks with this youth group from South Main Baptist. And Jim, the music director, passed through and said, y'all doing okay? You have everything you need? They said, yeah, we've got a few minutes to wait here. And Daryl said, Mr. Jim, can you take me upstairs? I'd like to see the big church. 
he called it the big church upside. He said, I've never seen it. I see the stained glass window from the outside, all the windows. He said, I'd like to see it on the inside. So he said, Daryl, come on. So Jim took Daryl upstairs and they walked into the big, gorgeous sanctuary. It was dark with all the light coming in the stained glass windows. Very impressive. And uh, he started to tell him about all of the architecture and the windows and looked around and Daryl was just transfixed over the choir rail. And he said, what, what are you looking at? He said, what's that? And Jim said, oh, that's the organ console. That, that, that's how you play the pipe organ. It, you know, it plays all the pipes. He said, this is a real pipe organ. And, um, uh, Jim said, yeah, yeah, uh, it sure is. It's, it's, it's the real thing. He said, I've never heard one. Can I sit down and play a note or two? And Jim thought, you know, here's a high school kid wanting to jam on our million dollar pipe organ. And after about three seconds, he said, sure, sure you can. Come here. And he said, listen carefully, when I flip it on, you'll hear the air fill up on both ends of the building. He said, it really runs on air. He said, yeah, those pipes are like big whistles. That really runs on air. So he flipped it on, and he showed him these stops, control this keyboard, these here, and that's the pedals. He said, just have fun with it. You know, explore around. You'll find all kind of sounds. He said, but remember, you got to play in 30 minutes downstairs. So um, 30 minutes later, the band came to Jim and said, we can't find Daryl. Where's Daryl? He said, I know where Daryl is. So Jim ran upstairs, and Daryl was still transfixed playing uh, noodling. He didn't even play piano on the pipe organ. And um, sort of uh, uh, Jim sort of woke him up and said, you got to go play your bass guitar, get downstairs. Well, that 30 minutes meant a lot to Daryl. Um, Jim could have easily said, no, 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 we don't let kids play the organ. You, you know, you know, it's fragile. You could break it. It would be. No, he said, yes, you can play the organ. And for 30 minutes, Daryl did heaven only knows what, playing and, and exploring around. Uh, by Daryl's senior year in high school, he was the principal organist at the South Main Baptist Church. He had applied himself. He had studied piano. He studied organ and was a very proficient organist by his senior year in high school. He went on to uh, Westminster Choir College at Princeton, New Jersey, and in seven years was head of the organ department at Westminster Choir College. A few years after that, Daryl Daryl Robinson is his name. He is now head of the organ department at the University of Houston and has a two-and-a-half-year waiting list for students who want to study with him, all because Jim said, yeah, you can jam. So be careful when you tell somebody no. You know, uh, Jesus reprimanded the disciples about that. He said, uh, um, you know, don't deny me, don't deny any of us. Uh, and they said, well, Lord, when did we see you hungry and didn't feed you or thirsty or in need of shelter or in need of clothes? When did we fail, fail you there? And he said, when you have done it to the least of mine, you, you failed me. But when you do it for them, you do it for me. And it's very clear in the scriptures. And at this particular time, totally unknown to Jim, he said yes to Daryl and gave him the 30 minutes he needed to change his life and many others. He's Daryl is undoubtedly the number one organist in the country right now. So all because uh, Jim said, yeah, you can jam a little bit and see what you can get out of this. So um, another interesting little story about God's timing. Um, when I was 10, still the same age, I went to Jacksonville, but it was later in the year. My uh, mother's first cousin got married in Savannah. Big family wedding. I was too young to play the organ. They they knew not to ask that because I was only 10. But she said, can you play the reception? We have a grand piano in the fellowship hall and would love for you to play piano music for the reception. And uh, my teacher said, yeah, let me put get some music for you. The stuff I was 
doing in piano lessons wasn't appropriate uh, for reception music, so she put together a folder of neat things that I could easily figure out at 10 years old and play for the reception. Well, the the real big news about my cousin's wedding is the reigning Miss Georgia was one of her bridesmaids. Um, and it was very difficult to get her approved because when you're uh, when you win the state pageant, you're in line for Miss America, and they own you. And she had to get special dispensation to be allowed to be in my cousin's wedding. So it was the big news. Oh, Mary Jane, Miss Georgia's going to be in the wedding. She's one of the bridesmaids. I was a nervous wreck. I thought, you're kidding. Miss Georgia's going to be there. So I had seen a Miss America pageant. I knew what that was all about. So I was nervous. I was playing in the reception hall, playing away, and I suddenly got the feeling that someone was standing over here. And I glanced over, and there she was. Gorgeous, tan, long, dark hair, sleek, bridesmaid's dress, holding the little cup of punch, and just smiling with that big Miss America smile. And I, I just nodded. She said, lovely music. Do you happen to know Claire DeLune? It's a piece by Claude Debussy. Beautiful p piano piece. I was 10. No, I didn't know. I knew it. I knew what it was. But I said, no, I'm sorry. I don't know. She said, no problem. It's my favorite piece, but what you're playing is just gorgeous. Keep playing. I'm just going to stand here and enjoy everything you play. I said, well, thank you very much. But it was sort of, sort of a bummer, you know, and the reception was over and mom, we were going home. Mom said, did you see Miss George? I said, yeah, I talked to her briefly. Dad, why can't I play Claire de Lune? <laughs> And she wanted Claire to learn. I don't, she, Dad said, no 10-year-old plays Claire to learn. Even if they're bright enough to know the notes, no 10-year-old understands the depth of a romantic piece like that on its multiple levels and knows how to perform it, how to play it, how to make it happen. Don't worry, you'll learn Claire to learn in good time. It's, you know, not, not at 10 years old, though. He said, even if I don't think I'd want to hear any 10-year-old try to play Claire to learn or something like that. So he put me at rest, you know. And many, many, many years later, I never learned it when I was taking piano in Savannah, but in college I heard several piano majors butcher it a time or two. And I finally got the music, said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna conquer this piece. It's gonna be mine. And I really enjoyed playing it from time to time. It served me well. I got to play it at weddings, played it for receptions here and there, and uh, even at church, uh, at Second Potsdam Baptist, we had evening services that were quiet and low key. And I would play it occasionally for the offertory, and people always commented on Claire de Lune. It's somebody's favorite song in every room I've played it. But I think my most poignant uh, performance of it was about um, 15 years ago. My minister of music at Sacrapostolian Baptist Church, John Condra, who interestingly enough is now the interim at First Baptist down the street in Roswell. Uh, but he was retiring after 30 years of directing music at Second Postelian Baptist, and they had a huge reception for him. And they invited all the organists back to play the piano at the reception hall. And my time was from 5 to 6 in the afternoon. It was a big drop-in reception. They decorated their family life gym into the Ritz-Carlton. They had satin and silk swashes going up the wall. They brought in a fountain on the floor, a flowing fountain, and they rented a nine-foot concert grand Steinway piano for that hall, and candles and food and punch, and it was it was just immaculate. So um, I was doing my little five to six o'clock gig, playing you know light light casual stuff, and about five till six, I knew it was time to wrap up. Although there were still quite a few people there. And I happened to glance up through the skylight. The sky was turning dark, but the moon, the full moon, 
was gleaming down right through the skylight. And I had five minutes. I said, I know what I'm going to do. So I went in. I got a sip of punch, cleared my throat, <laughs> flexed, and I went in to clear the loom. And the room got quiet. And I don't think I've ever played it better. It flowed on that big Steinway piano. The water was flowing over here. And just as I got to the end where this beautiful harp-like arpeggio drifts off into the, the mist, I glanced up, and through that nine-foot piano lid, there was this older lady standing at the end of the piano. And a uh, nice, slim, long dress, tan, dark hair, and then she flashed that Miss America smile. And did this with her thumb. Mary Jane Yates, Burke Alter, Miss Georgia, 1965. Oh, my God. There she stood. And I didn't see her until the last note of the Claire de Lune. And it was her. So, thank you, God. You know, it was 45 years later. Missed the opportunity at 10 years old, but he made sure she was standing right there on my best performance of it. So, so that's how God can patch things together and make things wonderful. Um, one more short story, uh, I'll try to make it short, about a friend of mine. And this this timing issue will turn an agnostic into a believer. <laughs> this is about a little girl from Alabama raised in the Baptist church named Mabel, um, somewhere in middle, middle Alabama. And she um, uh, was raised in the church and was a member of the GAs. If, if any of you have Baptist connections, the GAs and the RAs are the mission groups for the young kids. The GAs for the girls, RA, Royal Ambassadors for the boys. And she was a very active GA and went to a state convention at the uh, Baptist Assembly in Tacoma on Lake Louise uh, when it was brand new. It was, it was uh, they had just, just built that campground. And um, so she went with some, several of the Baptist churches and all the girls and spent a whole week uh, in mission studies, and at the end of the week, they had a dedication service. And she knelt down at that old hand-hewn altar at Tekoa and pledged her life to be a preacher in the gospel ministry. And when the counselor said, you know, so what is the nature of your response here at this invitation? She said, I, I want to be a minister. And they kind of laughed and said, oh, no, Mabel, you're a girl. You can't be a minister. You can be a missionary. And we'll pray that you will be a, she said, no, 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 I feel called to be a minister. And in the Baptist church back in the 50s and 60s, that was completely out of the question. So they said, Mabel Hush, don't, don't go there. You're, you're mistaken. You're sadly mistaken. Really upset her because that was her calling. She knew it was her calling, but they said, no, you can't be a minister. So, um, she took the next best thing, which was her music. She was a magnificent pianist. She perfected her art. In college, she went to the conservatory, the music conservatory in Houston. We're at Houston again. Um, studied and got her artist diploma from the Houston Conservatory. And uh, married and started raising a family and had her own piano studio in Houston where she taught many, many students. She loved it. She had trouble finding a good Baptist church in Houston. She, she should have tried South Maine, but she didn't. Uh, in her neighborhood, the churches just didn't seem to appeal to her. Uh, a friend of hers said, come with us Sunday to the Methodist church. And she thought, Methodist? I don't know. There might be too many differences there. They said, come with us Sunday to the Methodist church. It happened to be a communion Sunday. And uh, Mabel said as they, she sat in the pew waiting on the tray to come by like they did in the Baptist church. And the friend said, no, no, no. We go to the altar. 
And Mabel lined up down that center aisle facing the cross of Christ in the altar, and she said, I have come home. This is right. This is how it's supposed to be. Took communion and immediately joined the Methodist Church and was extremely happy there. Um, unfortunately, her husband got transferred to New York. She had to give up her piano studio. He was only going to be in New York a few years, so she didn't start a new piano studio because she would just have to pick up and leave them. He was transferred to Shambly. And she said, you know, I don't think I'm going to start a piano studio there either. We're near Emory. I think I'm going to go to the Candler School of Theology because the Methodists don't seem to have a problem with women being ministers like my Baptists did when I was a kid. So she went to Candler School of Theology. She got her degree there, and it came time for her full ordination into the Methodist Church, which was going to happen at the North Georgia Conference, which was held at the Mountain Center in Gainesville. She was so looking forward to being ordained a full uh, minister of the gospel. The Methodists got the call about two weeks before the conference that the Mountain Center, which was undergoing a renovation, would not be ready, and they would not have their certificate of occupancy in time for the Methodists, they would have to find somewhere else to hold the North Georgia Conference, which is a major deal. So they scrambled and called every possible spot in the state, and somebody happened to mention, well, you know, call the assemblies, the, 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 the Presbyterian Assembly, call the Baptist Assembly, see if any of them are vacant. It just so happened that the Baptist Assembly was booked up both weekends, but the middle of the week was empty, and all the Methodists needed was Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. So they booked the Baptist Assembly in Tacoa. And they had the ordination service, not in the big domed pavilion that had been built, but they had a wooden tabernacle halfway down to the lake that had been there since day one. And that's where they took the ministers to be, uh, to be ordained. And Mabel Foster, you remember Mabel Foster? One of our associate ministers here. Mabel Foster knelt at the very same altar that she knelt at as a child when they told her, you cannot be a preacher. And at that same altar received her full ordination as a gospel minister. Now that's how God works. There is a time, there is a season for every purpose under heaven. Thank you. At, at our last moon's breakfast, uh, we had a good video at the end. Remember the uh, the sculpting video? I, I sent it out. I hope you got it in the email. It's fun to share that with somebody. Good small group discussion. But it it brought home to me how, you know, we are all art that God's always working on, and um, the person next to you is art, probably still a work in progress, right? You probably. You sense that about yourself. You sense that, sense that about others. But there, there are few people where you see God's art pouring out. It overflows from them onto others. Um, when, when you were doing what God creates you to do, it becomes very manifest. Uh, Tom is one of those people who I cannot imagine him doing anything but what he does. And, um, I, I, I'm in the choir for a lot of different reasons, but one of those reasons is the best seat in the house to listen to the organ. <laughs> now, if you, if you, you know, there's at the end of it, it, there's a postlude. There's, that's what they call it in the bulletin anyway. And many times Tom will, Tom will play without music. 
And sort of the running joke in the choir is, wow, he made up another one. <laughs> Generally, those are all memorized. I can barely memorize two or three phone numbers. And yet, you know, when you, whenever you see any of his music, there are an awful lot of notes. And there are levers. And, and it is so obvious to me when he is in his zone and doing exactly what God created him to do. And when you see the fingerprint, he's, he's got these stories, and you're like, you know, did you read that in the book? No, I, I lived that. I was there for that. And I, when we talk about our witness, it's rarely secondhand witness. Secondhand witness is not as effective as firsthand witness. So I want to thank Tom this morning for coming and witnessing to us, not just his musical gifts, which are so manifest, but in the way that God has kept his family safe, in the way that God has impacted his life and through experiences that he's been aware of. I had not heard the Mabel Foster story, but one other time. And so it's a, it's amazing the one degree of freedom. I mean, many of you will probably remember her as an associate here. Um, I want to thank everybody for being here this morning. If, you, if you've got updated information or whatever, Jay is still here. Make certain you sign in. Uh, if you've got a few minutes and uh, can help Steve load his trailer. There was a car that was parked that keeps him from back in this trailer. So if you're parked in that corner of the parking lot, if you could help out, that would be great. Um, I want to thank everybody for starting their day uh, here at, at RUMC. Uh, come Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, and you'll get to hear Tom in his day job. And I believe there's a concert at 3 o'clock that afternoon after the barbecue. So you can come for Sunday morning, stay and have lunch, take a little nap on a bench, and then go right on to the concert. And uh, just an excellent opportunity. So the timing was uh, ideal. So uh, thank you again for Tom Alderman being with us this morning.